Hey, I'm Jerry. If you don't know me, uh, I'm the campus pastor here in Carmel. Good to see all of you. And just so you know, it is officially okay to wish people a Merry Christmas. Some of you weirdos have been doing this since July. It's officially time. It's officially time. But before we wish anybody a Merry Christmas, let's just take a moment and, and say, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you were able to have Friendsgiving or Thanksgiving with some people that were special to you and you were able to eat some good food with them. Uh, our family got out of town. We went to see my wife's side of the family in Louisville. And, and got to hang out with them, and again, ate just wonderful amounts of food. But since we're talking about Thanksgiving, I feel like there's probably some people in the room that we all need to thank. And if you haven't thanked them yet, you should thank them. So we're going to thank them in the room today. How many of you had a part to play in preparing a meal for some people? Just raise your hands, raise them high. Let's tell these people thank you on behalf of the people that didn't thank you. Okay. Now there's another group of people that we should all thank, and these are the faithful few the brave souls that had to go to the grocery at some point last week to buy something for the meal that we would all devour, right? Anybody have to go to the grocery store? I had to do this last week, man. It's like in and out as fast as possible, right? But it's not possible to get in and out fast. It's just, it's the week of Thanksgiving. It's crazy, right? So if you get groceries in your family on a regular basis, you will appreciate this story. Um, a few weeks ago, my wife was shopping for groceries for our family of six, okay? That's not a fast trip. It doesn't matter where you go or what you're getting. It's not quick. And she's always in there for longer than an hour. She's very efficient, but she was in there. It had been over an hour, and she finally got to the front of the store. It was time to check out. She's got her cart full, and there's 36 lines available, but only three of them are open. You know how that works, right? And that, that's just such a fun thing that they do. And so she's waiting there, and there's three people in front of her, and like a five-minute wait on top of the hour and a half, she's already been in there. And then she finally gets up to the counter. She begins taking her groceries out, putting them on the conveyor, and it stops. And the lights go out, and everybody looks around like confused, like, what's going on? Every time the power goes out, this is what happens, right? We look at each other like, this has never happened before. The power went out in the store. So everybody's a little confused, and you think, oh, we'll wait. It'll, it'll come back. It's bound to come back on, right? Well, 10 minutes later, confusion led to frustration. And people are like, like my wife is like, I've been here for 90 minutes. I just want to go home. Well, then a manager comes to the front of the store, bless her heart, cups her hands together and says, hey, everybody, I hate to tell you this but you have to leave all your food where it is and you just have to go home. The power's not coming on anytime soon. I, yeah, I know. And my poor wife, she, text, she was beside herself. Like, you're not gonna believe what happened. So everybody's grumbling on their way out the door and she overhears a cash registered clerk say, the worst part is, and there's all these carts around. The worst part is if we don't get the frozen and refrigerated stuff put away in 10 minutes, we have to throw it all away. Nobody can buy it. We can't give it away we're just going to have to throw it away. And my, my poor wife, like she had to go back out and do the whole thing over again later that week. So if, if you get groceries, you appreciate, that just stinks, right? And it, it just stinks to wait at the grocery. Nobody, I have never met a person that enjoys waiting anywhere, especially at the grocery. But we know waiting is, is part of life, right? Like it's, it's just something that we have to endure on a regular basis. But the only thing worse than waiting is waiting for something that all of a sudden you realize it's not going to happen. Like, I'm just, I'm waiting here for nothing. And when you feel like that, you, you feel stranded and helpless and hopeless. And it just leaves you with that sick feeling in your stomach. So for the next few weeks, we're kicking off this series called Waiting on Christmas. And we're going to look at the first Christmas from the perspective of a very unique group of people. This group of people had been waiting for several generations for something to happen. And when I, they've been waiting for a long time. When I say a long time, I'm talking like, thousands of years. Can you imagine your family waiting for something for thousands upon thousands of years? 
And here's the thing. These people didn't know this. What they were really waiting on was the first Christmas to take place, but they didn't know that that's what they were waiting on. They were just waiting for their circumstances to change. And all along the way, in all their long years of waiting, God had been good to them. He had promised them. He said, look, one day, I promise, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make everything better. He had given them these promises and these, these hints called prophecies, and they're collected all throughout the Old Testament. And they all point towards the same thing. Now, if you're familiar with, with the Bible, or in case you're not, the Bible's broken down into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's what's fascinating. The Old and New Testament are separated by an event, and it was the first Christmas. The first Christmas is the thing that separates the two. And had the first Christmas never happened, we wouldn't have a New Testament. It wouldn't be a thing. We would still be in the Old Testament waiting. And so this brings up a whole series of questions. The first question is, well, what was everyone in the Old Testament waiting for? If, if all that's true, all these long years of waiting, what were they waiting for? Now, oh, sorry, my watch is talking to me. Um, go away, Siri. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Let me, let me take her. I'll put her right there. Where, where was I again? First Christmas, what was everyone in the Old Testament waiting for? Thank you, Randy. What, what, what was it exactly that, that they were, were waiting for? Well, if you've been around church for a while, you probably know the answer to that question. Or even if you haven't been around church for a while, I bet you know the answer to that question. Because, you know, traditionally, what do we celebrate on Christmas? It's the birth of Jesus, right? We're, we're waiting for him to arrive. And, and here's the thing. That's an accurate answer, but it's only partially accurate. Because all these people that have been waiting for all these years for this long time, they, didn't, they weren't necessarily waiting for a man named Jesus to show up and arrive. They were just waiting for things to get better. So this leads us to another question. Well, then, when and why did all the be waiting begin in the first place? If they were waiting on Jesus, why was that ever a thing? When, when did it start? And in order to answer this question, you got to go all the way back to the very beginning. Not just the beginning of the Old Testament, but the beginning of time as we know it. The first book in the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. It's, it's a book of beginnings. And in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see how God created everything that there is, but his final act of creation, he, he made a man named Adam and a woman named Eve, and he gave them the best job description ever. Their job description was to have lots of children, to have a giant family, to spread out all over the earth, and to rule over the animal kingdom, to oversee everything God had had made, God empowered them to lead in his, as, as his representative across the earth. There was just one rule they had to follow, and it was just live in obedience to me. Now, if you're a kid and you, you hear live in obedience, you're thinking, oh, I hate obeying my parents, right? This is different. This is God. He's good. He's the creator of all things. He provided everything for them. And he says, if you live in obedience to me, we're going to be fine. You will get to live with me for all eternity. Well, I'm sure you're probably familiar with how this, how this story goes, right? At some point, God's arch enemy, a fallen angel named Satan, sneaks into their perfect garden home. And when he's there, somehow he manages to get them to break the one rule that God had given them. They disobey God. And as soon as they do, they realize something's wrong. Our perfect relationship with God, it's broken. It's damaged. It's, it's shattered. And all of a sudden, there was doubt where there had always been perfect trust. There was fear where they had always had a sense of safety, and soon there would be death where there was always meant to be life, never-ending life, everlasting life. And so 
Adam and Eve freaked out. They, they responded by doing something they never anticipated doing, that nobody had ever done it before. They hid from God. They knew that they had messed something up. And eventually, God came looking for them, and he calls out, and he says, hey, why are you, why are you hiding from me? And Adam, being the good leader of his family, he says, I got this, God. It's her fault. You gave her to me. She's the one that did this. Like, really manly thing to do, right? And so God looks at Eve, and he's like, okay, uh, what really happened? And Eve says, she tells the truth. She said, actually, Satan did this. And God doesn't give Satan an opportunity to respond. But what he does do is really interesting. God begins cursing. Now, he doesn't curse like some of us when we get really mad. God began cursing his perfect creation. And his curses were a response to their disobedience. He wanted Adam and Eve to know, now that you've disobeyed me, all creation will be cursed because of that. I just I gave you this perfect job to do, but because you didn't do it, everything is going to be cursed now from this point forward. But in the middle of all the cursing, God looks directly at Satan and he addresses him and he says these words. In Genesis 3.15, God says, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God says, let me be really clear about this. From this point forward, there will be a life and death struggle, a battle, a war between Satan and his minions and between the woman and all of her offspring. And then God says this, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I want to go back and read this verse again in its entirety because I want to highlight one very important word. God says something that's so important here, we can't afford to just rush past it. God's making a promise here. Look at Genesis 3.15 again. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then here's the word, he. He, singular, masculine. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now you've maybe seen that word he before, but you've never paid attention to it. And in some English translations, it's even capitalized. But here's the thing that you need to know. God was saying there's gonna be a war, but one day, a man will be born to a woman, and that man will come, and he will make everything right. He will restore all things. Now, scholars have a very scholarly term for what is happening here. It's based on a Greek phrase that, that is the proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. Now, in Greek, in English, that means first gospel. This is the first gospel. The word gospel means good news. This is the first time God says there is good news though. One day I will send someone who will come and make that right. Now we have the benefit of hindsight and say, oh, we know who that is. That's Jesus. He's going to come and and be born into the world. And he's the reason we celebrate Christmas. He's going to die for our sins. But just in case you haven't put all the pieces together yet, whenever God says he, a clock begins ticking, counting down the events that would lead up to the first Christmas. And from that point forward, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, everybody was asking some version of this question. Well, then who is he? And when's he going to arrive? When is he going to get here? Everybody, every time somebody had a baby boy, they're like, oh, is it him? Because God made a promise. He's going to send a, a man to come and make things right one day. Now, thankfully, God continued to give a series of promises all throughout the Old Testament so people would know who they were waiting for a while. They were waiting for this he guy to show up. But here's the thing that we have to remember. There was a lot of waiting that was still to take place. Adam and Eve come and go, and they have children, and apparently none of them are the he. But several chapters later, 
In Genesis chapter 12, God begins talking to another man. He makes another promise about who this he guy would be. He's talking to a man named Abram. And listen to what God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord God said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those that bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And then look at this last verse. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's, that's quite a promise, right? Now, here's why this is so significant. Today, Jewish people trace their heritage back to this promise. Anyone that's ever been Jewish would go back to, oh, one day God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a family. And here's the thing. You, maybe you know the story. Abram goes on and God changes his name to Abraham. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And God renames Jacob Israel. And eventually, eventually Israel has a family. And that family grows to be a mighty nation. And what, we, what we're learning here in Genesis 12 is God's telling Abram, one day your family is going to be huge, and I promise I'm going to send the promised he from Genesis 3.15 through your family line. And somehow, somehow he is going to be able to bless the whole world at some point in the future. Now, that's a huge promise. I mean, that's really exciting when you think about it. Generations had passed since Adam and Eve, and now Abraham is receiving this promise. But here's the thing. There was still a lot of waiting left to be done. And if you fast forward several more books in the Old Testament, you'll come to a guy named David several generations later. And you know David, right? David and Goliath, he, cuts, he kills the giant, cuts off his head, keeps it as a trophy. David was an Israelite, meaning he was one of the descendants of Abraham. And David is also special because he was a king, but he wasn't just any king of Israel. He's the greatest king that's ever ruled in Israel in the Old Testament. But here's the thing that you also need to know about David. He loved God, but he wasn't necessarily a good man. He was like the rest of us. He sinned, which meant eventually David was going to die. And someone else was going to take over his throne. But in the midst of all, of all of that, the reality that he loved God but was a sinful man, God made a promise to David at the height of his career as king in Israel. And I want you to listen to what God tells David in 2 Samuel 7. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. So king upon king upon king. For when you die you, and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. And then look at this last line. And I will secure his royal throne forever. Think about that. David's worried about who's going to take over after he's gone. And God says, I got it covered. And in the words of the great Michael Squince Palladoris from the Sandlot, this king's going to reign forever, forever. Like, think about how long that is. That officially makes the Sandlot a Christmas movie. You can go watch it this week. It's, it's prophetic, I think. Now, I want to take a step back, and let's put, these pieces, let's put these pieces together, because we've just covered about three credit hours of Hebrew history in eight minutes, okay? What, what, is, what does all this mean? Here's the point. God created everything perfect. He, he, he gave this first man and woman this amazing job description. But the moment they messed everything up, God stepped in and said, hey, I promise one day I'll make it right. One day someone will come and he will restore everything to the way it's supposed to be eventually. But there was so much waiting, so much waiting that had to be done. 
And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the Israelites continued to trust in these promises that God had made to Adam and Eve and Abraham and David, but nothing seemed to be happening. They were just waiting because eventually David died. And his son Solomon became king, and he was known for being a wealthy, powerful king. But at some point, Solomon made a decision to turn his back on God. He began worshiping other gods, and God punished Solomon. And as a result, the whole kingdom of Israel suffered because the kingdom of Israel that was once powerful and mighty, they were in the land that God had promised to Abraham. Well, now the kingdom was split into two. And eventually, both of those kingdoms would disintegrate to the point where the Israelites were living in the land that God had promised Abraham, but it wasn't theirs. They were squatters in the Roman Empire. They were being oppressed by the Romans. And then to top it all off, at the very end of the Old Testament, God went silent for a period of 400 years. Now, in most Bibles, you will find between the Old Testament and the New Testament one blank piece of paper. And it represents this period of 400 years where God said nothing. There were no kings. There were no prophets. There were no more promises. There was just a lot of waiting and a lot of hoping. Man, I hope, I hope that God will be faithful to that promise that he made to Adam and Eve. I hope that God will be faithful to our father Abraham and to our King David. And they waited and they waited for a painful amount of time until finally it happened. And it happened in a way that no one would anticipate. In fact, it happened in a way that no one even noticed. But this baby was born. No one knew it was happening. No one knew what to expect. But on that day, that baby was born. The countdown was over. The first Christmas had arrived in a way that no one would have ever anticipated. And so for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to go look at some of the prophecies from the Old Testament that you find throughout the New Testament stories of the Christmas story. But today, I want to wrap up by looking at how the New Testament begins, because it begins in a fascinating way. In fact, it begins in a way, if you've ever read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you probably thought, uh, this is boring. I'm just going to, I'm going to flip to the next chapter, because there's just a bunch of names here. But if you want to follow along, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. In your Bible or in the Bible around the room, that's on page 675. We'll have all the verses that you need up here on the screen But Matthew ends the 400-year silence of the Old Testament in a pretty fascinating way when he begins his first gospel. Matthew 1, verse 1, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So Matthew says his name is Jesus, and he gives him a title, the Messiah. Now here's what's interesting about this word, Messiah. Some of your English Bibles might use the word Christ, Okay, so here's what you need to know. The word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word, Mashiach. The, the word uh, Christ from, comes from a Greek word, uh, Christos. Both of them mean the same thing, whether it's Messiah or Christ, however your Bible translates it. It means the anointed one, capital A, capital O. In other words, what Matthew is saying is he has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Messiah. And then if you keep reading into Matthew chapter 1, not only does he tell us that he is the long-awaited he, he gives his readers a gift from 23andMe. He gives them the whole genealogy of this Jesus guy. And look at what he says. This This is so amazing. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He says, do you... 
Do you guys remember all the promises that God had been making our people for all this time? He traces back to Adam and Eve. He traces back to Abraham. And he traces back to David. But there's something else that I just found totally fascinating this week that I got to share with you. I learned this from Brad Gray, who was teaching at our Noblesville campus this morning. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Matthew writes this, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, he says, this is the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Now, here's what's interesting. The word genealogy and the word birth in Greek are the same word. Same word. It mean, it's the word, it's pronounced genesis, but it means genesis, birth, offspring, lineage, and family. And all of those are accurate translations of this word. But here's the thing. Matthew is letting us know this is the genealogy. This is the birth. The word connects us back to the very first story in Genesis where God promised to send a he. And then he begins tracing the genealogy. He wants us to know that this Jesus, this Messiah, Jesus, is the long-awaited he of Genesis 3.15. He would come to conquer Satan, to conquer sin and death. He's the one that was born into Abraham's family that would bless the whole world. He is a king in the line of David that would rule and reign forever. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the anointed one. And, and I don't know about you, it's just fascinating. These ancient writings and how they connect and tell a story of who the he is, and his name is Jesus. Look at what else Matthew says in Matthew 1.18. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, again, you're probably familiar with that detail, aren't you? But here's why this is important, because Matthew is saying, yes, he is the king, he, he is the son of David and the son of Abraham, but he's also the son of God. His mother became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he is the son of God that has come to live among us. And then look at what Matthew says in Matthew 22 and 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And that name means God with us. Now, here's what's interesting. That prophecy comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah lived 300 years after David had died. So at some point in the past, he says, there will be a virgin who will have a child. His name will mean God with us. That's an amazing prediction, but it's a really long time to wait for something that seems totally impossible. But I can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder if Matthew wasn't quoting this prophecy from Isaiah as a way of saying, I know it's been a long wait, but can't we just agree the wait's been worth it? I mean, yes, son of Abraham, yes, son of David, but the son of God, God in the flesh. He has come to live among us. He has come to experience life like us. And then Matthew would go on to tell how he lived and he died to pay for our sins. And the New Testament writers, they all teach us that anyone that would put their trust in Jesus, the Messiah, your sins are forgiven, but you're also adopted into God's family. We become sons and daughters of God. Our future is secure, and our relationship with our Heavenly Father is shored up again. It is back to the way it's supposed to be back in the Garden of Eden. And Matthew and all the gospel writers, what they really want us to know is when that first Christmas arrived, the wait was over. He was here, and he had come. 
Now today, this is, this is pretty interesting, today, December 1st, is the beginning of a season known as Advent. You've probably heard of Advent before, right? And I bet many of you have Advent calendars at your home. Well, the word Advent comes from the word Adventus, and it literally means the arrival of something long anticipated. And so you, if you have an Advent calendar, you know you, you open up a door every day for the month waiting for Christmas to get here. When I was a kid, my, my parents did something that I think is really cool. We're going to reinstitute this in our family this year. We had a, an Advent wreath. We had four candles. Three of them were purple. One of them was pink. And the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, every Sunday we would light a candle. And those candles represented different things. They represented hope, like the hope of the coming he. They, they represent the faith of Mary and Joseph to trust in God's promises. The third candle represents joy, joy to the world. The Lord has come. And then the fourth candle represents peace, peace on earth. The Prince of Peace has arrived. And so beginning today, followers of Jesus all over the world will begin celebrating the Advent season. And so if you're looking for something practical to do for you or your family, maybe you go out and get an Advent wreath and you light a candle every Sunday leading up to Christmas as a reminder of what we're getting ready to celebrate. Or maybe you have an Advent calendar, but that would be a really practical thing for you to do to remember this is what we're waiting for. But there's something really else that's really interesting about Advent. It's not just limited to Christmas. Advent means the anticipation of something to come. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he said, I will return. When he was taken up into heaven in the book of Acts, two angels are standing there with the disciples and they say, men of Galilee, why are you standing here? He's going to come back the same way he went. Go. So we always live in a constant season of Advent in anticipation of Jesus returning to the earth. In fact, I find this fascinating. The final words of Jesus in the New Testament that are recorded in Revelation chapter 22, listen to what Jesus says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Listen to this. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. He is saying, I, it's me. I am the long-awaited king that will rule and reign forever. And then he goes on to say, let anyone who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. And then his final words, Jesus' final words that John recorded in the book of Revelation. Yes, I am coming soon. So yeah, we live in a season of Advent waiting to celebrate Christmas, waiting to celebrate his arrival but for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we should always live in a season of Advent, anticipating his second coming that could happen at any moment. We don't have to fear it. In fact, we can pray and say, Jesus, please, would you come quickly? Would you come rescue us from the mess in this earth? Because you know what? We have family members that die. We lose jobs and our health will fail. Jesus, please come quickly. It's an okay prayer to pray. It's a, it's a wise prayer to pray. But in the meantime... What are we going to do while we wait? I think the best thing that any of us could do, really simple thing, if you want to write these words down, wait well. Just like the Old Testament Jews, we have to learn to wait well. We have to trust in these promises. Trust in Jesus for who he tells us he is. Trust in Jesus for what he has said he has done. And we are not crippled by sin anymore. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We can do more than all that we, we can ever imagine by the power of God's Spirit living inside of us. We need to learn to wait well. And I don't know what waiting well looks like for you, but what I'm learning that it looks like for me is I have a lot of distractions in my life that take my eyes off of Jesus. I live as if he's not gonna return. I live as if he never came in the first place. I'm down, I'm distracted, I'm disheartened. 
I'm not living well. That's not the way he wants us to live. He wants us to be carriers of this gospel message to go. And everywhere we go, with the way that we talk, with the way that we interact, with the way that we respond, we live with the hope that, yes, he came once and he is coming again. And there are people that we know that don't know him. The first gospel came in Genesis 3.15 and now the gospel has been handed to us to go and share with the world around us. We need to learn to wait well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the power of your word. Oh, it's, it's fascinating to me to think these ancient books were recorded. We don't even know how old they are, but at the very beginning, you made a promise. While the creation was being cursed, you said, just wait, he is coming. He will crush Satan. He will free you from the power of sin. And I'm thankful for the promise that you made to Abraham. I'm not Jewish, but I know that through Jesus, that promise has come. The whole world has been blessed through his son, Jesus, through your son, Jesus. And I'm thankful for the promise that you made to David. We're not waiting for a Hebrew king. We are waiting for the king of kings, the Lord of lords, to arrive one day and you will come, Jesus, and you will make everything right. Would you help us to wait well? Would you give us eyes that are tuned in and focused on you? And in the midst of the hustle and bustle of this season, would you help us to cut ties with the world, to not worry about how much we're going to spend, how much we should spend, what we're going to get, what we can give, but to celebrate what has been given to us through you, through your son, Jesus. Would you help us to wait well as we carry this message of the gospel? in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, in the way that we act and interact and react. Jesus, would you shine through us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Thank you that all of your promises can be trusted. It's in your powerful name we pray, Jesus.